Hi, I'm Eden. And I'm Nicole. And welcome to Roadside, Roadside Horror, Horror Show. So, this week we are still in... Maryland. Maryland, thanks. I forgot where we were for a second. Nope, just Maryland, the, fr- the old line state. The old line state, jousting, that jousting, stuff. That's a blue crabs. Ooh, those blue crabs, those though. Those blue crabs. And oysters, and I don't like them, but I love them. Ugh, no, slurpy meat is not my thing, especially <laughs> when always has sand in it. <laughs> How was your week? It was okay. It's been weird weather-wise, and... Uh... It's been, like, cold, then hot, then cold, then hot, all freaking week. There is, like, weird times in, like, September, October, where it gets, like, strangely hot, which is actually just called Indian Summer. Oh. Yeah. Are we having an Indian Summer this year? Uh, probably. Ah. I mean, in the afternoons we are, anyway. I mean, I kind of enjoy the fact that I can still wear shorts and then just put a hoodie on. That's true, yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't wear shorts, but... I like shorts, because I just do. My legs are too pale. I'm Irish. Well, my legs are very pale, and I'm also Irish, but I've covered my legs with tattoos to give you something to look at. That's true. I need to do the same. <laughs> So, Nicole, you have a story for us, I hear. I do indeed, Eden. So, my story takes place primarily at the Harbor Town Resort, which is in St. Michael's, a little town located on Maryland's eastern shore. So, the Harbor Town Resort offers a quiet getaway with beautiful views of the Chesapeake Bay. And it's basically comprised of a bunch of little cottages that make up the guest rooms. Okay. And then, like, a main facility, which is the lobby, resort, kitchen, dining room, that kind of thing. That sounds fun. Yeah, the pictures online I saw of it looked really, really cool. Um, very, very uh, pretty, very relaxing. Yeah. So it was also the exact kind of place that Steve Rico wanted when he booked a romantic Valentine's getaway for himself and his wife, Kim. Ooh, fun. I mm-hmm. like romantic getaways. Who doesn't, right? It's nice to take that time away from the craziness of everyday life and kind of go outside of the normal with your beloved and just enjoy each other's company. Just relax with no murder. Exactly. Well... Unfortunately, for Stephen King, that's not exactly how it ended up. Stephen King? Stephen Kim, sorry. <laughs> Stephen Kim. I was like, well, we Stephen know what King. happened to Stephen King, but what happened? <laughs> <laughs> well, Stephen Kim ended up having a very tragic experience at the Harbor Town Resort. The name of this story is actually called The Murder Mystery Weekend Killing. Hell yes. And I do want to thank you, Eden, for uncovering this little gem. Absolutely. And tossing it my way because I really enjoyed researching this because it's a pretty pretty unusual story about passion and murder and love, all that good shit. And I tried not to read it after you said that you were going to do it then because I really wanted to cover this story, but I already had a guy that made people into burgers. I know. It's like a hard toss-up, right? Yeah. So I'm glad you're doing it, and I can't wait to hear. All right, awesome. So some of this may be familiar, but I'm pretty sure there's going to be some fa- some facets of the story that you don't know. So the story primarily takes place in 1998. By that time, Steve and Kim Rico have been married for about nine years. Their marriage started off pretty well. They were very much in love, but over the years, Kim grew really dissatisfied, especially in the past couple years preceding 1998. Um, Both of them worked outside the home. Steve was a golf course manager, and Kim worked as a surgical technologist, which I had never heard of that. Do you know what that is? No, that's not a title I know. (laughs) I know. I had to look it up to make sure I was understanding what exactly she did. uh, She builds, like, prosthetics, perhaps? Not quite. It's actually, I guess, somebody who works as part of a surgical team at a hospital. So, like, when you go in for surgery, you have, like, your doctor, your anesthetist, probably, like, some nurses... And then you have this surgical team who basically handle, like, the cleanup, making sure that everyone scrubs in properly, that sort of thing. Okay. Um, sometimes they're called, like, a scrub a scrub team. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That so I've heard on, like, TV shows. Exactly. That, that, when I came across ER that person. term. Yeah, when I came across that <laughs> term, I was like, oh, like, on ER? Yeah. <laughs> so um, that's what Kim did for a living. But she was also super frustrated with their, their life together because even though they both worked, serious jobs... Kim was pretty much left with a bulk of the housework and a majority of the parenting of their young daughter. Okay. On top of that, they also had clashing personalities in that Steve was really a homebody. Like, he liked to go to work, come home, relax with his wife and kid. Whereas Kimberly was like, great, let's go out and do something. Let's, you know, go see a show. Let's go to the movies. Let's go have drinks with our friends. So opposites. Yeah, so total opposites. On top of her feeling that she has all of this housework to do and, like, a woman's work is never done situation, she just got really fed up. And it put all this extra pressure on their marriage. They started having really serious marital problems. 
And things grew so bad that in 1997, Kim and Steve started going to couples counseling to try to sort out their issues. Well, that's good. At least they're trying to do something about it. Yeah. And it seems like by all accounts that Steve really, really loved her and he wanted to save their marriage. So he started taking additional steps aside from counseling. He tried to help out more on the house, spend more time with Kim and be like more physically affectionate and appreciative of her. Um, and he even, like, went so far as to write her little love notes, call her in the day just to say, hi, I love you. Did he refer to her as Darling Wonderheart by any chance? <laughs> no, not no. that I found. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that would have uh, been the thing that, like, got Kim back on his side. Maybe, yeah. But by all of this, like, his extra attention actually like, did not work for Kim. It made things worse. Oh, no. She felt, like, even more suffocated. She even told a friend that all of Steve's efforts were stifling, and she really felt like their marriage was just over, and she was done with it. Oh, shit. Well, you know, they tried. Yeah, they tried. Um, and they kept trying. So, while Steve is trying to be like, oh, babe, I love you, I'm gonna really work, and whatever, to the point where he ends up booking this romantic getaway for them on Valentine's Day, 1998. No one ever does anything for that, anything like that for me. <laughs> I mean, me Nicole, too. Nicole, but... why can't you be, oh, wait, that's right, never mind, we're not actually dating. I have a committed relationship in my life, and I don't even do that for her, so. Uh-huh. You're would... a terrible wife. I mean. Hear that, she... Ashley, I'm sticking up for you. <laughs> I do lots of loving things. I just am really bad at booking vacations. (laughs) It's like the truth. Every time you go on vacation, I'm like, we should go do that. And she's like, are you going to? All right, I'll make the, I'll make all the arrangements. And I love it. I haven't actually been on a vacation since I was married. Oh, yeah. Now it's been a while. Nothing's better than a vacation where it's just you and your partner because it's like. It's good. You can do whatever you want. It's awesome. I recommend it next time you're in that situation. I will if I am ever in that situation again, which I don't know that I want to be. So, (laughs) except for things like vacations. I'll just hire someone. <laughs> You're like, we're going on vacation. Plan it. Take me. Exactly. Thank you. Yeah, that's it. I'll buy you candy if you say you'll do this. <laughs> not that shitty Whitman sampler? Yeah, not that one. Not the Whitman <laughs> sampler. I'll give you like some Frere share or something. I'll be classy. Yeah. I'll get you some Ghirardelli. Oh, yeah. Ooh. So I'm not sure if Steve bought Kim Ghirardelli, but I do know that Kim was over it. So it was no surprise when she began the fair in December of 1997 with a man that she met at a friend's wedding. So he's like sitting there being like, babe, I love you. Let's spend more time together. She's like, yeah, I'm just going to go to this wedding without you. And then she meets this guy and starts an affair with him. Oh, great. So all of this like super exciting new love that she's having in her life that's not her husband makes her even more desperate to end things with Steve. So in January of 98, she talks to Steve and asks him for a divorce, which is what anybody would do when they're convinced their marriage is kind of kaput and they want to move on. But normally you wait until after your divorce to find someone else rather than before. Well, some people do. Yeah. I don't know. I've never understood cheating. So It's either here nor there, though. Steve refused, by the way. Oh, nice. He was like, come on, we're, we're working on this, but we can make it work. We have to make it work, at least for our daughter's sake, especially for their daughter's sake. Then Tim Gunn pops out and he's just like, make it work. <laughs> you call this a marriage? <laughs> so Kim agrees for some reason that she's going to keep making it work. And then Steve goes the extra step, because it's, again, January 1998, and he books this romantic vacation for them for Valentine's Day. Uh, so the arrangements he makes are to go to the Harborview Resort, And that Valentine's Day, they were offering this romance package that included a murder mystery dinner party, along with, like, you check in, you get, like, chocolates and a bottle of champagne, the whole nine yards. Future love interest out there somewhere. If you're listening, that's what I want. Do this for me without (laughs) the murder that comes afterwards. Fair enough. With the murder mystery, though. Yes, with the murder mystery. Exactly. Uh, Really creepily, though, side note, the murder mystery production that they went to see that weekend was called The Bride Who Cried. Um, and it's one of those murder mysteries I where, I do like, remember reading that part. <laughs> the Bride Who Cried. Um, it's one of those murder mysteries where, like, the actors, like, circulate with the guests before, yeah. like, during cocktail hour. And, like, they're all in character. And then they go and do the production and the audience tries to solve the murder. Um, and in this particular production, the murder was of a bridegroom who drinks poison champagne at his wedding reception. Oh, okay. So someone's possibly getting ideas here. I know. And it's like, I would question the bottle of champagne. Yeah, right? <laughs> So, oh, speaking of which, have you ever been to a murder mystery dinner no, or party No, I always anything? wanted to. I know, me too. We should have one. Oh my gosh. 
Yes, like Airbnb, like a cool house, and just like yeah. invite people and do like a, like a clue weekend kind of style. That'd be really cool. That would be really cool. Mental note. So anyway, back to the Ricos. Rico Suave? No, just Steve and Kim. Oh, okay. So as Valentine's Day grows closer, Steve's super excited about this. He's like, this is going to be the thing that's going to fix our marriage. We're going to have this awesome weekend and reconnect. So he, what helps people reconnect more? Murder. murder Perfect. Murder mysteries. Well, you know. <laughs> he actually kept a journal, and in his journal, a couple days before they left for vacation, he had this journal entry, which is actually kind of touching. Uh, his journal entry said, quote, Life at home is improving, and I'm looking forward to Valentine's Day weekend at Harbor Town with Kim. She called twice a day and said, I love you, without my asking first. Or saying it first. I was Aww. very happy. Like, oh, right? <laughs> Kim and I have not made love yet, but I want to, but I'm willing to wait as long as it takes. I love her. We've been married for nine years, but I feel like we just started dating. Oh, that's really cool. Right? Like, he's, like, so invested in this relationship. I like him. Yeah. Steve Steve sounds like a pretty cool guy. Pretty nice. Very nice man. So, February 14th rolls around. Kim and Steve arrive at Harborview. They check into the room. They get their champagne, their box of chocolates, pick up their tickets for the murder mystery dinner later that evening. Uh, around 7, they head over to the murder mystery dinner. And then they leave and return to their cottage together between 10, 10.30 that night. Then, at... 3 a.m. in the morning of February 15th, Kim appears in the lobby of the resort. She's on her cell phone, on a call to 911, and she walks in and tells, nine, as she's telling 911, my room's on fire, please send help. Walks into the lobby, talks to the resort staff, and tells them, my room's on fire, I need help. Great. Yeah. That's nuts. A resort employee and another guest who happened to be in the lobby race to the cottage where the Ricos were staying. They're not able to open the front door, so they hurry around to the back of the cottage. And the back of the cottages have, like, these little porches with sliding glass doors and Adirondack chairs. So you can, like, enjoy the sunset over Chesapeake Bay. That must be nice when there's not a fire. Exactly. It's like, in this case, the back porch is covered in, like, smoke billowing out from the sliding glass doors. And as the employee and guests, like, look through the smoke, they see a pair of feet. And they crawl into the smoky room... And the employee grabs Steve Rico, who's lying on his back between the two twin beds in the room with a pair of, like, burning pillows near his head. And they pull him out of the room. His head and his chest are badly burnt to the point where they're pretty sure he's not even alive anymore. He was the one that called about the fire, right? No, it was Kim. Oh, Kim called about the fire. Kim showed up in the lobby and was like, there's a fire in my room. Okay. So the fire marshal shows up eventually and all the police and other, other fire departments and they confirm that the fire originated in the two pillows near Steve's head and that it burned for roughly 15 minutes before the amount of smoke in the room kind of snuffed out all the oxygen to the point where the fire extinguished itself because it didn't have any yeah. oxygen to breathe. Um, the carpet was also burnt in various places and the fire kind of spread to a nearby bread spread and mattress and destroyed one of the twin beds before going out. Side note, it's supposed to be a romantic getaway and they have two twin beds. Yeah, that's not very romantic. Was it like Donna Reed? Like, what's happening? <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> it's a 1950s show. I'd be so pissed if I showed up someplace being like, babe, it's a romantic getaway. A romantic twin beds that we have to push together. Yes, and then the headboards don't go with it. So you're like sitting there not trying to lose shit behind the bed. Ugh, rude. Anyway, Steve was found with his left arm raised above his head and his pajama bottoms pulled down. Oh. And there was a Playboy magazine and a package of cigars with one missing by his side. That doesn't seem staged at all. Not at all. And the smoke inhalation that happened in the room, because the whole room was like filled with this nasty burning like pillows and bedspreads, bed, mattress, seemed to be the cause of death. It seemed pretty obvious. See, with this whole cigar and Playboys and pants down thing, yeah. it just kind of makes me think of Heather's. Where, oh, where Ram and yeah. the other football player. Yeah, whatever his name was. Yeah, I don't remember his name. It was something normal. Like Kyle or something. Yeah, it was like Kurt. Kurt, yeah, Kurt, Kurt and Ram. Ram. And yeah, they just put like all the like the gay the stuff gay paraphernalia. around them. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, okay, I got some bottled water. A lot of people drink bottled water. <laughs> There's Ohio. <laughs> you don't have a brewski in your hand, you might as well be singing. <laughs> Uh, I love my dead gay son. That was a good I movie. love my dead gay son. I forgot <laughs> about that. Oh, God. Ah, <sighs> uh, good times. Anyway, so that's how they find Steve's body. 
Naturally, the police show up and they start to question Kim about what the hell happened that night. She tells them that after the murder mystery dinner theater, they go back to their room around 1030 and they turn on the TV and they catch part of the movie Tommy Boy. Which no one wants to watch at all, so they're not going to believe I mean, I find Chris Farley and David Spade incredibly romantic. It's such a great partnership. I miss Chris Farley every day. Chris Farley was pretty good. He was pretty good. I liked him on SNL. Yeah. Kim goes on to say that Steve had been drinking really heavily the whole evening, and as soon as they get back to the room and kind of settle in, he starts pawing at her for sex. And she told him no and reminded him that they had agreed they wouldn't... Um, have sex necessarily on this getaway before they got there. Like, part of her agreeing to go on the trip with him was that they wouldn't have to have sex. It was kind of like they play play it by ear, but there wasn't guaranteed booty. Gotcha. So she kind of gets angry at him. They have a fight. She gets fed up and grabs her purse and her car keys and storms out of the room around 11, 11.30. She just says, oh, the evening news is on by that point. I left. She tells police that she started to drive to nearby Easton, Maryland to visit some friends who lived there, but she got lost. She had to stop a couple times and ask people for directions. Eventually, she can't find her way to the house, and she gives up and starts to head back to the resort. She gets back, parks the car a little after 1 a.m. She gets back to the room, tries to go into the front door, but realizes in her haste to leave, she forgot her room key. So she walks around the back of the cottage and tries to slide in glass doors. And as she pushes them open, smoke begins to billow out. Now, according to Kim, she then ran back to the front of the cottage and to some of the adjacent guest rooms and started banging on doors and screaming for help. But nobody was there. She didn't get any responses, which was a little weird just because all of the rooms around them were occupied that evening. Yeah. Yeah. So she then says she jumped in the car and started driving to the main lobby, and she used her cell phone to call 911 while she was on the way. How far away is this main lobby from where they were? I'm not sure. It seems like it's one of those things where it's like a pretty large resort. Yeah, so, so it's, it's like, like, here's where you check in, then you drive to... Exactly. Yeah, okay. Drive to your room, park in front of it, yeah. So she also tells police when she's relaying the story that Steve liked to smoke cigars when he drank. So it seemed like Steve's death was essentially this tragic accident that resulted from mixing too much booze and an unintended cigar. Uh, Another side note. When I read that part of the story, uh, it reminded me of my grandfather because he was a fire chief in Philadelphia. Oh, cool. And he was like all about fire safety, obviously, because he saw all kinds of terrible, terrible tragedies. And one of the things that he said was surprising is that there are so many fires that start because people leave cigarettes, cigars, and candles unattended. Yeah. And it's like you, we'd be surprised how quickly that can just like burst into flames because it might be next to something super flammable. And it's True. just like you always have to be super careful. Like he was very particular about candles being burnt in his house, things like that. Yeah. So the moral of the story is, you know, don't smoke, but especially don't smoke in bed. Because yeah. that's a death trap. It does seem like one because you're, you know, all those blankets and crap mm-hmm. go up in two seconds. Mm-hmm. So... The police are like, oh, okay, well, to wrap up this investigation, we got to do our due diligence and do a little bit more digging. And they discover that some of the facts about the evening of the 14th don't add up to Kim's story. First off, they talk to Steve's family and friends who all insist that he never smoked cigars, like ever. They never saw him smoke a cigar. It wasn't something he enjoyed. And he also didn't drink often or if he did drink, it was never heavily. It was maybe a beer or two with, yeah. like, dinner or whatever, watching the game. But nothing, like, he That's wasn't a big drinker. That's if you're going to stage a murder, why choose something that he never really did? Uh, I mean, there's a lot the of... the means of fire. Well, because <laughs> you're desperate and you're not thinking it through. Uh, the other thing that kind of sparked police interest is the fire marshal actually brought in, like, an arson dog to the cottage. And arson dogs are trained to sit or point to areas where there might be some kind of accelerant used. And the dog went into the cottage and actually sat down near where Steve's body was found, um, indicating that there was some kind of accelerant in the present in the room. Okay, so they already kind of suspected that this wasn't Yeah, legit. something's not quite right. Um, so they do a little bit of lab analysis, but it's inconclusive, so they can't really tell if there's any kind of accelerant used on the pillows or on Steve's body. Okay. Then the police start talking to the resort employees and the other guests who saw Kim that night in the lobby. And all of them said that she was like surprisingly calm when she reported the fire. One of them even said, quote, she walked into the lobby and there was no evidence. I mean, there was nothing to show that she was upset. She was just walking into the lobby. She was very calm. 
even when she said, there's a fire in my room, we all got more excited than she did. Huh. Right? <laughs> God, I mean, at least, you know, take notes from your murder mystery party people and uh, learn how to be a better actress. Seriously, watch an episode of Murder, She Wrote, for God's yeah, sake. Yeah, right? So the police clearly are like, all right, all right, well, let's dig a little further. They go to the hotel bar and they look at the couple's bar tab for the murder mystery to see how much Steve really drank that night. And the bar tab is only $5.50. And they happen to come across one of the other guests who was at the Rigo's table during the dinner portion of the theater production. Okay. And this man happened to be a district attorney, or assistant district attorney, I should say. And he said that, yeah, Steve was drinking, but he only saw him drink a beer or two yeah, at dinner. That was it. That was it, yeah. Like, so he wasn't drinking anything hard. He wasn't, like, throwing back the martinis or, you know, old fashions or anything like I am known to do sometimes. Not drinking an entire handle of whiskey. Whoops. No. He just had a couple, like, probably Millers or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, again, adding to all the suspicion. And then the final thing that made police go, why? We need to dig a little further. Is Kim's story about getting lost on the way to visit her friends in Easton, Maryland. After her fight with Steve. So Easton is only about 15 minutes from the resort, but Kim got lost for over two hours. Well, that's, you know. Right. Plus, plus, she had a cell phone with her. Uh... Because she used to call 911, remember, when she was going back, when she, like, was running from the cottage to the the, level. 98? Yeah, you had cell phones back then. Yeah, but. I'm sure it was, like, an Okia, you know, brick phone, but (laughs) it was still a cell phone. I mean, think about The Matrix. That came out around those years, and that's how they got in out of The Matrix, right? Oh, uh, yeah. The cell phones. I guess. I only saw The Matrix once. I didn't really cool, understand what the big deal cell was. cell phone that popped up, and I was like, psh, psh. Yeah. Um, so maybe Kim had one of those. I don't know, but it was possible. Um, so she had this cell phone with her the whole time she's driving around trying to find her friend's houses, or her friend's house, and the investigators are like, so why didn't you just call them? And what does Kim, our you know, master criminal line, say? Oh, I didn't want to wake them up. It was too late to call. Well, right? then why are you... <sighs> right? So it's like, I don't want to call you because it's so late, but I'm going to come knock on your door. door. yeah. It's like the complete opposite uh, of how things work. Like, <laughs> I feel so... like when I, like, go to someone's house, like, when I come over to your house, I'm like, I'm going to text him first. And then if I'm running late, I might call him, but I'll probably just text him again. And then I'll knock on the door. Exactly. And if he doesn't answer right away, I'm going to text him again. Yeah. Like, that's how it works. So that's wow. So she's just really not good at this whole murder. Right. Thing. I'm like, really, girl? Like you say, I didn't want to wake them up. Not like I didn't have their number in my phone. I couldn't remember their number. Yeah. I didn't want to wake them up, even though I was going to see them. That uh, makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Crazy. <sighs> so as Kim's description of the evening start to make less and less sense, the police are like, we got to dig into their lives to figure out what the hell's going on here, yeah. because this does not seem kosher at all. Uh, first, they discover that Steve actually had a really large life insurance policy for somebody who managed a golf course. The policy is, I saw different numbers for it in some sources. Some said it was $200,000. Other ones said it was $400,000. Either way, it's a bunch of money. Yeah. Then they find out about Kim's affair. And it turns out that Kim was more excited about dropping off some presents for her lover that weekend than she was visiting uh I'm sorry, then she was going away with her husband on Valentine's Day. So on February 13th, the night before she and Steve left for the romantic getaway, Kim stopped by her lover's house to drop off some Valentine's Day gifts. He was out of town. Um, he worked for the Pentagon, so he was away on a work trip. Yeah. So she leaves a note with his presence. And the police find the note, and here's what the note said. Oh, God, here we go. Mm-hmm. Quote, I really wanted to give you all these gifts in person, but I guess the Pentagon had different ideas. I am so proud of what you do. So I'll just go on missing you. Have a nice weekend at home, baby. I look forward to seeing you soon. Happy Valentine's Day, sir. I love you so very much. Hugs and kisses, Kim. Ah, well, that's not revealing at all. Not at all. Yeah. And then there is this really disturbing piece of evidence. And it kind of pointed all signs saying that Steve's death was absolutely not an accident. And that popped up when police started talking to Kim's coworkers and friends. So one of Kim's coworkers told investigators that in January of 1998, so after she, like the same month that she had asked him for a divorce and he said no, no yeah. but that she also agreed to go away with him, she was talking to a coworker and she jokingly said, or so he thought anyway, that she wanted to kill her husband. The coworker is like, oh, you're so crazy. Yeah, and then turns oh, around such and, a good joke. and like looks at her and realizes she's serious. Yeah. Now Kim knew that this particular. dead serious. Dead. Ooh. 
Ugh. Eden. Kim's dead serious. <laughs> <laughs> and the, here's like the also kind of shitty thing. This is kind of is I found this encounter to be great insight into who she was as a person. So she knows that this coworker had previously been convicted of a nonviolent felony. And that's the person she's like, I really want to kill my husband. And he's like, what? You're crazy. Oh, you're serious. So it was a nonviolent felony. Though. Yes. It's like. And then she looks at him and she's like, hey, do you know anybody who would kill my husband for $50,000? You don't just go around <laughs> asking people those types of questions. But literally, she's like so rude to be like, oh, that guy is like, whatever. He has a criminal past. So I'm going to ask him. He probably knows somebody who can take care of this for me. <laughs> right? Rude. Um, yeah, so at that point, the coworker said that he got super uncomfortable and kind of like, you know when you get uncomfortable when someone says something creepy, you kind of yeah. like make a joking response, and he's like, oh, ha ha, he's like, well, you work in an operating room, you could just put him to sleep, and then you don't have to worry about him anymore. Whatever, I gotta go. Oh, man. Yeah. So, Kim was like, oh, shit, I should not have, like, brought this up with this guy, and tells her coworker, oh, whatever, I was just kidding, forget about it, but don't tell anybody about this. Don't tell anybody I said anything about this. This <laughs> is just between you and me, I'm just joking, don't worry about it. So not sketchy Kim, at all. Kim, 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 Kim. Kimmy, Kim, Kim, you're the worst criminal ever. All right. So the police go on and start interviewing Kim's friends. And again, like, she was pretty outgoing. She liked to go out with the girls. She had a lot of girlfriends. And she talked to them pretty regularly. Uh, one of her friends relayed a particularly damning phone conversation that she had with a really drunk and upset Kim on January 30th of 98. According to her friend, Kim was, quote, talking more about how it would be easier if Steve were dead. And she told me that she had a plan that would do it where she wouldn't get caught. Uh, The friend goes on to say to police that she told me she could get a drug that would paralyze Steve, that it would stop his breathing, and that she could set the curtains on fire with a candle or a cigar and that he would die of smoke inhalation in the fire and nobody would know. So the friend's like, well, maybe you're just drunk and upset and whatever and like kind of like, you know, says goodnight to her. The next day the friend calls her and she's like, hey, remember that crazy talk about killing Steve? Yeah. That was just crazy talk, right? Like, you're not going to do that. Like, if you are, I'm like, I want to talk to you about this because that's like, it's your not husband. Cool. Like, yeah. don't kill him. Like, just leave him. And Kim tells her friend, oh, no, no, I was, you know, just, I had too many glasses of wine, whatever. She basically has an answer for everything. And she's really evasive when the friend's like, no, seriously, are you going to do this? And she's like, no, 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 I'm not. It was just a thought. It's just a stray thought. Yeah. I wouldn't actually do that. So that's creepy. Even worse, an other friend, so a totally different friend, is like talking to investigators about Kim. And she mentions how the whole month of January, she's talking about how she really wants a divorce from Steve and that Steve doesn't want to give it to her. And that it would just be better, she thinks, if he would just die because she wouldn't have to worry about this whole divorce thing. Ugh. This friend told police, quote, she said that he would be nothing without her and her daughter, and that if they got a divorce, he would try to turn their daughter against her or keep her somehow. Kim also told the same friend that Steve, quote, didn't really have much of a life outside that marriage anyway, so he'd be better off dead. What? Yeah, she's a real gem. Real gem. Oh, God. I mean, this is a really good story, so I'm glad that you did take my advice. Yes. But just... Wow. Like, it was it was amazing how much testimony there was about Kim talking to people about wanting to kill her husband. She's an idiot. I know. She's like, I'm going to plan the perfect murder, and then I'm going to screw up the about it perfect murder. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So remember how we were talking about, like, what the hell is a surgical technologist? Yeah. Okay. So that's, that was Kim's job. And, like, part of her job was to collect and properly dispose of, like, unused medical devices, unused, like unused medicines from surgery to care of all the biohazard materials. So one of the medications that they used at her surgery facility is this medicine called sexinylcholine. Sexinylcholine. Sorry, hard to say. Sexinylcholine. Do you know, I, are you familiar with that? It sounds familiar, so probably back from my... Yeah, that's the generic name. There's a bunch of different, like, branded names for it, but yeah. it's essentially a extremely strong muscle relaxant. Yeah. Like, it's so strong, when you inject it, it will relax your diaphragm and stop your breathing. So when they use it in surgeries, they have to be really careful to make sure the patient's on a ventilator so they don't accidentally die. Um, It's also super potent. Like, so potent that when they give it in an an IV during surgery, it works in, like, five seconds. Oh, wow. So, like, you have to be on the ventilator before they give you this drug because it could possibly kill you. 
And even then, sometimes if it's ejected in the muscle, which is like the slowest form of injection, right? Yeah. It'll work within a minute. Holy crap. Yeah, it's super potent. That's some heavy-duty stuff. Yeah. And then the most alarming part about the whole drug is that uh, sexenocholine will actually be almost undetectable in forensic blood tests because it breaks down super quickly in your blood's plasma. Yeah, okay. So the only sign oftentimes that someone has even been injected with it will be like a bruise at the injection site. There's some drugs like that out there. There's um, one, I don't remember what it was. Um, it is completely masked when you put it into alcohol. Really? Yeah. That sounds like a, a novel I want to read about. Yeah. I remember, side note, tangent, I guess, more so. One of the coolest books I ever came across in a bookstore was this book called A Writer's Guide to Poisons. Oh, yeah. I Have you seen that? that? It's so good. It's so interesting. And it's like, it goes through like what the poison does, how you get it, what, what its effects are on victims so you can write murder mysteries. And then it has like the antidote. Yeah. And the antidote for everything is like charcoal, activated charcoal, or milk. Huh. So always have activated charcoal. And milk. milk around. Just chew on a broquette. You gotcha. Because I think the book is probably by the same people that do these ones. Who did it forensics. Yeah. Possibly. Is, I have my forensics. I have a police procedural one for my, um, when I would try to write mystery novels and stuff. Awesome. So. So, in the future though, next time you write a mystery, a murder mystery novel about a murder that's more successful perhaps than Kim's. I'm not going to have some idiot talk about it <laughs> to everyone but you can reference uh sex and acoline as the drug that's i could causing yeah. people to die so anyway kim's like oh this is fucking perfect i have the perfect murder weapon now to, to get rid of this pain in the ass husband who won't give me a divorce however Does she know that she can just get someone to serve him the papers and it's just gonna slow down the process but it'll still happen i think uh, personally i think she was she wanted the easy way out. In her yeah. head, it was the easy way out. Because she's just like, fuck this, I want to be with my new guy. She wanted to be with the new guy. She wanted to have money, which she would get from his life insurance. And she didn't want to deal with the custody battle for their daughter. Oh, that's true. Because yeah. their daughter's like... things difficult. Yeah, no, their daughter's like, I think, eight, eight or so. Like, oh, yeah. So it's like, she doesn't want to have to deal with all that bullshit. Yeah. But I mean, what's going to be harder on the child than uh, daddy's dead because mommy killed him? Her daughter is the person I feel the worst for in this entire story. Right? Yeah. So Kim has her murder weapon. She has her plan to set something on fire to make it like Steve died, smoke inhalation. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, she didn't account for a lot of other things. And the police are like, all right, well, we need to not only do an autopsy on Steve, but we also need to make sure we have a medical examiner come in and run additional forensic testing. So they do. And the tests show that not only does Steve have a zero blood alcohol level, there's no carbon monoxide in his blood and there's no soot in his airways. So that means that Steve was either dead or not breathing when the fire started, which could only have been the case if Kim had actually injected with perhaps too much sexenocholine. Okay. So Kim gets arrested because they have enough evidence Duh. for suspicion of his murder. <laughs> and she's charged with first degree murder. She goes to trial in January of 99. At her trial, her defense lawyers suggest that Steve was depressed and he was suicidal due to the state of his marriage. And they did have evidence, they had prescriptions that Steve was indeed on an antidepressant that shouldn't be mixed with alcohol. And they said that because he was drinking on the night of February 24th, he caused his own death because it could have triggered like a suicidal spiral. Yeah. Especially after Kim rejected his advances. So this is what the... um, Defense attorneys said. Yeah. I mean, that's a pretty goddamn ballsy defense that is like especially because the prosecution theory was that kim had planned been planning steve's murder for a while been talking about it obviously they had witnesses and then she used the promise of sex to kind of lull steve into a state where she could like just inject him yeah with with the sex choline and then she set the fire to make it look like an accident or like and i guess i she thought that it wouldn't kill him as quickly as it did because she was really counting him dying of smoke inhalation yeah well, see, this is what I love. I love when the court stuff just gets nuts in these stories. Yeah. Like, that's what I loved about my Tom Capano story from Delaware, mm-hmm. where it was just like, oh, yeah, this guy has this uh, illness, but I never even checked him out. Yes. So I don't really know. Or, yeah, fabulation, yeah. that was it. <laughs> and just other stuff like, uh, you're using that defense that you prosecuted back in the 70s. Yeah, so, so ridiculous. It's not actually real well all that craziness happens in in kim rico's trial too because the prosecution's like 
all right, we have this evidence from the from the investigators, and they read all of the quotes from like the resort guests and her friends into the into the court record. They have some more friends testify, and they also have some of Steve's family testify. Now, not only do witnesses say that Kim was like unusually curious about the progress of the medical examiner's report and like super anxious to get like Steve's body and back so she can move on with funeral arrangements. Oh god. But the prosecution's like all right, so why are you so curious if it's pretty much everyone's thinking this is just a tragic accident? Why why are you putting all this, why like... Why are you so, yeah. Why are you so gung-ho to get his body back? It reminds me of the lady that I bought my house from. <laughs> uh, when, they, when it came time for the, uh, the inspection uh-huh. to be done, she was actually there, and she's not allowed to be there. Mm-hmm. But she was there, and the guy had already started inspecting before we even got there. Oh. Yeah, to look at the house. So, but she's just, like, wringing her hands the entire time. Like, oh, I hope this goes okay. Like, so it's, like, obviously she was hiding things. Maybe she was just nervous. But no, in retrospect, sure she, was she was probably hiding things. Because there's a lot of shit that's been going on in this house that's been just stuff that shouldn't have happened. If yeah. everything was as they said when they... That's always sketchy. Yeah. I'm sorry to hear that, but... Yeah, that's the same situation, right? Yeah. Someone's, like, hovering, like, what? What do we have? What do we Exactly. Got? It, it makes you feel like there is something up here. So she's, like, badgering people to find out more information about when she's going to get Steve's body, when the medical report's going to be wrapped up. And then her sister's, like, on the stand and testifying, or, or, sorry, Steve's sister is testifying that that was super strange because when it came time to make the funeral arrangements, Kim just insisted that Steve's body needed to be cremated. Quote, she let it be known that it was fine with her if we took care of all the other arrangements except the cremation. She said that she and Steve had decided on that and any other aspect she didn't have a strong opinion on, but it definitely had to be a cremation. Everything else was up to us. Hmm. She really wanted that evidence gone. Yes, she did. And she was oh so smooth about it. Very, of course. I mean, no one would suspect her in a million years. No, right? And of course, Kim's like, I'm innocent. The whole time she puts in an innocent plea. As a trial progresses, she maintains her innocence. Dude, you told everyone you were going to kill him. Like, really? Right? And that's the thing. is, like, the prosecution's like, oh, yeah? Well, we have these three other friends yeah. who also have information about this. So a friend who visited Kim while she was in jail. Oh, God. To be like, oh, how you holding up? Blah, 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 blah. Just stop talking, Kim. Just stop <laughs> talking. <laughs> this friend is like, hey, are, like, are, is this going to, like, you know, are you going to be okay? Like, is your daughter going to be okay? How's this going to, like, this trial, how is it going to impact, like, Steve's insurance payout? And Kim basically admits to killing her husband to this friend because, according to her friend, Kim said, quote, I don't care what anyone says. It wasn't for the money. That's an admission of, wow. (laughs) Ah. (laughs) God. I know. I'm like, are you kidding me? So, Kel Supree... The jury takes about three whole hours to find Kim guilty. So she gets convicted of first-degree murder. I don't know why it even took three hours. I know. (laughs) Right? Well, probably because they were, like, shooting the shit. Like, I can't believe this dumb bitch. Right, yeah. I would be doing the same thing. (laughs) So she gets sentenced to to life in prison for first-degree murder and then 30 years for arson. Oh, shit. Because she basically, like, lit shit on fire in the hotel room. And... One small reprieve is that she does get to serve them concurrently. Okay. Today, she is still behind bars. She still maintains her innocence in Steve's murder. She's still appealing her case, too. Um, and she won't give any interviews to the media about the case, uh, per the advice of her appellate lawyer. So she's like, no, I won't talk about it, blah, blah, blah. However, because she's fucking Kim, who can't keep her trap shut, she'll periodically write first-person essays and letters. Oh, God. Yep, yep. Oh, Kim. In her recent essay, she complained that the prison rules are too strict because she's not allowed to snuggle her granddaughter. Oh, man. And another, which appeared on this website um, called The Marshall Project that I found. It's like a criminal justice website. Yeah. It's a really good resource. I really like it. Kim grouses about the fact that the prison authorities won't let her read Game of Thrones. Huh. Why won't they let her read Game of Thrones? I don't know, but she's an innocent woman. She deserves to read Game of Thrones. That's true. She is so innocent. Just so, so innocent. Yeah, like anyone believes that. Also, like, there's been written correspondence that people have, like, released to the press that Kim has written to them where she says she can't, quote, help but cry as she writes her letters saying, quote, I'm frustrated. 
Here I sit in my cell, sentenced to life plus 30 concurrent. I am innocent. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So she never confesses to the killing, but all these conversations that she's had with people makes it pretty evident that she probably most definitely murdered her husband. And like I said before, like, the person I feel the worst for is their daughter, who was basically 10 at the time that her mom got sent to jail and her dad's dead. So it's like you have this poor girl who basically grows up without without any of her parents, either of her parents, knowing that her mom killed her father. And I guess, I mean, I guess she's doing it okay because she has has her own children now and, like, still probably has some kind of relationship with Kim, but, like... I guess well, yeah, awful she's going for to her. visit her, or at least yeah. the grandkids are able to visit her. Yeah. It's like, that's just terrible. But that is the crazy-ass story of the Murder nuts. Mystery Weekend killing. I'm so glad you did this one. <laughs> right? When I showed up and I was like, I have eight pages. And you're that's like, what? amazing. <laughs> that was just nuts. I know. I, I didn't think it'd get crazier than your than your Delaware story. Yeah. About Amory Fahey, but I'm like, oh my god, no. Steve Rico's murder was That's, even crazier. Yeah. Now I'm definitely gonna watch the Forensic Files episode on Dude, it. I didn't have time to watch it, but I found like a couple little like um Oh I'm sure it's great. There's a lot of like web videos that kind of summarize the murder. I'm like, oh my goodness, craziness. Uh, oh my. Wow. Yep. Well on that note I don't even know. Yeah, we're gonna have to take a break now take a because break. get some brain snacks. Brain snacks, yeah, that's what we need because because you feel not dumber snacks. for having heard her story. Yes, but also not snacks that are actually brains, by the way. Mm-hmm. Not that brain snacks. All right, fine. See you in a bit. Sorry that it took us so long on our break, but Kim was talking about how she's going to murder her husband. So. Again? Yeah, that Kim. You got to hang up on a bitch. I know. Oh, um. Also, during the break, I learned some very interesting information from Nicole. The guy that played Buffalo Bill in Silence of the Lambs was the freaking guy from Monk, not Tony Shalhoub, the other one. Yeah, Stottlemyre. Yeah. Blowing the mind. I'm just like, what? No way. Okay. A mustache changes a face. It does. And also, so there's like the, the like amazing, iconic moment in Silence of the Lambs where Buffalo Bill's doing the dance to like go by horses. Yes. He's like, I'd fuck me, blah, blah. That song plays all the time in my Pandora station <laughs> for like my, my goth music. So good. <laughs> so there's that. I always think of that. But then in Monk, there was this one episode where Stottlemyre gets drunk his wife like goes away or leaves him. And he sings Billy Withers, There Ain't No Sunshine When She's Gone. Oh, God. And you can hear it. And you can hear it. Oh. It's amazing. So it, it changes it changes that song. And I love that song even more now. That is amazing. I need to check that out. Because Monk's a show that like I see sometimes. And I'm just like, I'll watch it if it's on TV. Oh, yeah. It's like one of those ultimate background shows for me. I'm like, I want something on that I can kind of like drift in and out on. It's always like Monk. There was one episode that I was like really pissed off about. Um, because... I saw this woman who was supposed to be a doctor, and she checked this guy's pulse with her thumb. And I'm like, your thumb has its own pulse. You don't check a pulse with your thumb. What's wrong with you? <laughs> I'm like, stupid TV. They should have fact-checked before they did this. And then, Where's your continuity editor? At the end of the episode, Monk was like, I noticed something strange. When she checked his pulse, she did it with his, her thumb. And I'm just like, <gasps> okay, good. You're like, all right, you're fine, Monk. All right. Just like with Supernatural in the episode with the, the tulpa. I don't think I saw that one. Um, where there was all these, like weird occult symbols like drawn on this barn and he's like i know this one from somewhere where do i know this from like that's the freaking blue oyster cult symbol <laughs> and finally at the end it was like i thought i knew i knew this one it's from blue oyster cult baby don't fear that reaper <gasps> exactly so do you have a paranormal story for me i do now maryland by the way i'm sorry maryland i love you but i hate you now because what it was so difficult to find a freaking story that was long enough in Maryland. Everything was two seconds. That's true. Maryland has a lot of legends and a mm-hmm. lot of folklore, but they are sort of like those like bite-sized stories you tell like on like a, like a freak-out drive or over a campfire. Yeah. And I was going to do this one uh, called Glendale Hospital, I believe it was, where it's like this tuberculosis uh, hospital. Mm, those are always the worst cause, it, because people would go there to die, essentially. Exactly, yeah. You'd be stuck there the rest of your life because they didn't, no again, they didn't know shit about TB. Just like they didn't know shit about um, epilepsy like we discovered <laughs> in my other episode. Um, but um, Fun fact, uh, when I get a man two test, which is like that bubble test yeah. for TB, mm-hmm. I register as positive. What? Yeah, I'm allergic to it. 
Oh. Yeah, it's a big thing because I used to work in a nursing home in high school in like the kitchen and I have to get, you have to get the transmittable yeah. disease or communicable disease test. Yeah, I've taken once the Manchie test yeah. lots of times. I would always show positive and it got to the point where I would have to get like a chest x-ray every year. Just to make sure you didn't have yeah, it. Yeah, just to make sure I didn't have it because wow. if you have it, you have to. Well, if you have it, you, you have, have to go on medication. Yeah, and if you have it, even if it's like you're done with it, mm-hmm. you'll still register as positive every time you take yep. the test then too. So eventually I had to have an allergist like write me like a note to put in my medical file so I wouldn't have to keep getting chest x-rays every year. That's crazy. Yeah. But with this tuberculosis story, it turned out that it wasn't haunted at all. Like, I couldn't find anything on the haunting, (laughs) and then finally I found something that's like, yeah, it's not really haunted. Kids just say it's haunted, and they trespass and graffiti and stuff before Uh, they get taken away by security. That's a bummer. Yeah. So instead, I have something different for you. Oh, I'm excited. That I mean, I'm ready for, like, a weird, spooky story that maybe isn't about a haunted place or... Oh, no, this one's still haunted. Oh, good. Okay. I was just lying anyway. Good. Our stop for this week is in Hagerstown, Maryland, which is in Washington County and is the sixth largest incorporated city in the state. Yeah. I haven't been there personally, but it seems like a cool town. It's it's semi-rural, yet has, like, the appeal of city life. It's, like, a lot of places in Maryland that yeah. I've been to, like, Frederick and, like, maybe not Baltimore, but, like, Frederick and some of the other smaller yeah, cities. Yeah, Maryland's, like, a pretty cool state. Yeah, it's cool. Lots of horse farms. The town here has stone ridges that are running northeast to southwest uh, through the town se- through the center of town. Hmm. The stone ridges are something called Stonehenge limestone, and most of the buildings in the town are originally built from that material. And while most are now made of other materials, there are a lot of the older buildings in town, such as like St. John's Episcopal Church, that are still made of the stone. Uh, but I'm not here to discuss boring churches. You want a haunting, and that's what you're going to get. Woohoo! This is the story of Hager House. Hager House. Does Sammy Hager live there? No. Jonathan Hager. No. So Jonathan Hager, he was the town's founder. He was a German immigrant who moved to Maryland from Pennsylvania. We always end up doing German stuff on this podcast, but it's the area. Well, it's not just the area, actually. When you look at, like, uh, immigrated populations in America, and, Mm -hmm. like, it was like, I remember seeing this map once, and it was like, here's a dispersion of immigrants through America. Germans actually make up the most. Really? So, like, all through the Northeast, through the Midwest, it's primarily German immigrants. So you think, oh, Irish, Italian, whatever. Nope, Germans. That's really crazy. I never knew that. Okay. Well, he was born in Germany in 1714, and he was one of the first German settlers arriving in Philadelphia in 1736, and he moved to Maryland somewhere in the late 1730s. He purchased his first 200 acres of land in what is now Washington County and called it Hager's Fancy. That's like Fowler's just, delight. Just wait. <laughs> he founded the town in 1739. He called it Elizabethtown, which he named for his wife, who was only 15 when he married her, but I guess that sort of thing was like okay back then or wait, something. Wait, wait, wait. Did he marry her like... When she was 15. But like, how old was he? Like, did he marry her, like, back in the old country? Or was it, like, he found this, like, 15-year-old that he married when he got to America? I'm not sure, actually. Well, I'm going to assume it's okay. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll I'm gonna, say I'm going to believe the best of Jonathan Hager. We'll say it's cool. Everyone likes this guy, so we'll say it's fine. All right. It wasn't until 1814 that the town began being called Hagerstown. Uh, even though he's credited with founding Washington Township, it's also rumored that he knew, and it's also rumored that he knew George Washington. Oh. Um, okay. the township only became its own thing after his death. So he had no real say in what it was called. Oh, but so he didn't like call it Washington Township, even though he knew George Washington. It was just like a thing that happened afterwards. Exactly. Yeah. Gotcha. Uh, he built his house, Hager House, in 1740. Now this made me really mad because this house wasn't even built out of the fucking limestone the town is surrounded by, but with flagstone. <laughs> way to ruin my intro. Thank you very much. (laughs) It's like, you know what? We have all this wonderful limestone that makes good buildings, but... I want to do something special. I'm different. I'm so emo. Exactly. Whatever, Hager. You're not going to listen to these conformists. Anyway, this house is really cool, actually, because in the basement, uh, there are two freshwater springs. Uh, That might be why he used the flagstones instead of the limestone. But these springs were, like, naturally at 40 degrees Fahrenheit year-round. And were used for drinking water to preserve food, like a refrigerator, and regulated the temperature of the room. That's awesome. Yeah, that's pretty impressive, honestly, especially for back then. Uh, The house also had two kitchens, one upstairs and one in the basement. 
in the summer when it was too hot to be used as a regular kitchen, they would use the one in the basement, which is called the summer kitchen. The kitchen space was used as a smithy the rest of the year. Okay. The house is also built in the German colonial style with a single chimney in the middle, which allowed for less heat to escape from the house in the winter. Uh, these people literally thought of, like, everything when they made this house. Yeah, that's a really cool idea. And here's a really cool part, too. They would also store animals in their basement um, so they'd be safe in the winter. <laughs> that's, like, life goals right there. <laughs> but in a weird symbiotic relationship, the body heat from the animals also helped to heat the house. Yeah, I'm not making this shit up. This is, like, really... I can I can believe that, though, because heat rises and stuff. And, like, you have a bunch of, like, you know... That's true. A bunch of your goats in the basement. Yeah. Hanging out and drinking from a deliciously crisp spring. A deliciously crisp spring, yes. The walls in the basement were 17 inches thick to protect against the elements, so it was perfect for sheltering these animals. Did you find a bug on you? It was a moth. A moth. Okay. There was also a wall that separated the spring area from the rest of the basement, which had an embrasure for home defense, because I guess the 1700s were a dangerous time and they needed to an embrasure to protect themselves in the basement. I'm not familiar with an embrasure. Think kind of like in castles, like the little cutouts, like for like shooting arrows and stuff like that. It's like that. It's very similar to that. So you can like hide behind it and still attack people? Correct. Gotcha. Uh, He didn't stay in the house that long though uh, and sold it to the Rohrer family before buying more land and naming that land Hager's Delight. (laughs) See, that's where I was going. Hager's Delight. That's why I was like, just wait. So he has Hager's Fancy. Mm-hmm. And then Hager's Delight. And then your story was Whoever's Delight. Fowler's Delight. Fowler's Delight. So this has been a delightful episode. <laughs> so the Rohrer family, who we sold them to, who we sold the house to, kept the house in their family, giving it to their relatives, the Hammonds, until in 1944 it became owned by the city. And it's now a museum which hosts a ton of events there, including ghost tours. So check the website for a link if you're interested. It'll be under Dark Discoveries. Mm. That's where I've decided to host all the cool stuff we talk about if we want links to all that. Thanks, phone. Sorry, I'm so popular. So, John Hager is a legend of a man. There's nothing negative that a single person ever said of him. And a biography written about him by Mary Vernon Mish reads like a sappy love letter. He was quite the overachiever, just like Emlyn Physic. Mm-hmm. He was a farmer. A gentleman. Well, yeah, he just, he didn't really farm, but he <laughs> he owned farms. So he's a farmer, a gunsmith, a blacksmith, a farm manager, a fur trader, and a politician. He's like a, a new world renaissance man, basically. Pretty much. And the politician part is kind of weird since they didn't really want him in politics because he was born in Germany, not the U.S., so there was like a problem with that. Kind of like how it is now with presidents. Oh, gotcha. Everyone in town loves him so much that he's often the subject of school projects and is brought into the curriculum quite often as is German culture in honor of him. I feel like all we do is cover Germans, I swear. I mean, <laughs> I have no problem with that. I have that. no problem with as that either. who has quite a bit of German, German heritage. heritage. Yeah, I have German heritage, too. And uh, who's, who loves most German food and beer? Oh, I do love Bavarian pretzels with don't beer even, cheese at Applebee's. Don't even get me started. <laughs> There's also a trading post that was in this house as well, since he was a fur trader, which is pretty neat. Now, since this is the story of a haunted house, you'll probably be surprised to hear that John is most likely not the one, one of the spirits that haunt the house. I mean, I kind of get that, though, because it sounds like he was a pretty busy guy. Plus, he has two properties to haunt that he wanted to haunt. The family only lived there for about five years, and John had moved away from the house at the time of his death, which was in 1775. Okay. He died when helping to construct the Zion Reformed Church. Apparently, a log rolled over him, and he died. That's (gasps) That's, some shitty luck. That's so terrible! Yep. He was 61 years old at the time. And John and Elizabeth's children also died early. I don't know how many they had, but I read an article that said only, like, two of them lived to their adulthood. Okay. Uh, Which I guess is standard for the time, though. Yeah, pretty high infant mortality rates in, in colonial America. Absolutely. So the new owners of the house, the Roars and the Hammonds, didn't fare much better either. In the 1840s, a lot of them died. Four of the grown Hammond children died in the three-month period of each other in 1844. And three infant children uh, of Alex and Susan Armstrong, Susan was originally a Hammond before she got married, uh. they die in the house as well. And so did Alex and Susan. Was that all within like 1844? This is all in the 1840s. Oh, okay. 
Um, so the total amount of documented deaths in this house is actually 13. But there have been probably many more than that. Wow. Now, this seems like it's going to be quite a haunting ground. <laughs> so we've heard about Hager's Fancy and Hager's Delight. So now I'll tell you about Hager's Hauntings. <laughs> Love it. Trifecta. I had to think of something catchy, you know. Why not? So there's a metric shit ton of ghosts in this place. <laughs> First off, you have the basics. There's objects that are said to move around on their own, and disembodied voices can be heard throughout the house. People hear the sound of footsteps coming from the basement, as well as heavy objects being dragged across the floor down there. People report the feeling of being watched as well. Some people report seeing a woman staring out the window. Like standing out the window staring out of Just it? like standing there being like, oh, let's see what's out here today. Huh. Yeah. Upstairs in the nursery, the cradle will rock of its own accord, as well as a rocking chair, and the temperature fluctuates a lot in this room, and on a tour, a woman just ended up fainting for, like, no reason. Nope, nope, that's super-duper creepy. Yeah, I think it's because of all the child deaths. Ghost babies are, like, yeah, a no... special level of, like, tragic and terrifying all exactly. at the same time. yeah, no ghost babies for me. Mm-mm. Nope. There's said to be a feminine energy in the kitchen and a masculine energy in the trading post area. Sexist as hell. This might be John by the Trading Post. I'm not sure. It didn't really say anything. But like I said, I just don't know if he'd go back to the home if he only lived there for a few short years. And it probably wasn't the house that his kids grew up in either. Mm. So, Full-bodied apparitions have been seen throughout the entire house fairly regularly, too. Uh, if you're female and you go into this house, Nicole, be prepared for the ghost of a little girl to latch onto you. Ugh! Yeah. I don't even let that when alive children do that. I know, right? It's cute, but it's it's still creepy. I'm also awkward around kids sometimes. Yeah. I like it when I can talk to them like a person. Exactly. Yeah. But then again, if they're like really little and they're not smart to talk to you like a normal person, then that's a little creepy too. Oh no, I find that so charming. It is, but it's still weird. Yeah, but it's so charming because they're so polite and like... Yeah. But then you can also like ask them questions like, so what's your favorite cartoon? And they actually tell you as opposed to like having to point to things like, do you like that? Do you like that? Yeah, that's true. Then I just feel awkward like I'm grilling them. <laughs> <laughs> Shine a bright light in their face like it's an interrogation. Tell me, kiddo, do you like giraffes or monkeys? <laughs> monkeys, please don't hurt me. Okay, so there's also a lady in green. This is different because there's normally a lady in white or a lady in, in black. black or, yeah. yeah. But this um, is a lady in green who is seen looking out the windows or just walking down the hall. Did you find out if it was like any particular time period of dress, like the 1840s? It seems like it's probably or? like, yeah, 1800s y. Okay. Kind of deal. There's a man in black, who's not Johnny Cash, <laughs> um, who is seen in the house as well as around City Park, which is, you guessed it, the city's park, <laughs> where the house is situated. Ah, gotcha. Um, so if this sounded interesting to you, which I think it sounds like a really fun haunted location with a lot of activity, just visit our website for the link, like I said. Um, if we haven't drilled it into your head yet, it's roadsidehorrorshow.podbean.com. Dark Discoveries? Yeah, the Dark Discoveries section. You'll see it. It's a button you click on. So it has a lot of different events and even has some ghost tours. And has a ghost tour at midnight on Halloween, too, if you really want to get freaked out. Mm-hmm. So I'm sorry that the story was short for this week. But like I said, it was slim pickings. And I thought this one still was pretty damn cool. I agree. So, that's my story for the week. Uh, I do have... No, I don't have anything to tell you this week, because next week is I'll have stuff to tell you about oh, the yeah. ghost tours and the... I'm super excited to hear about the ghost tours and just all the new information that you're going to have about the history. Yeah. Mm. I can't wait to find out more stuff, and hopefully I won't mess up on my lines. I'm going to have to like write shit down on my hands or something. I don't It'll know. be fine. It'll be fine. Yeah, I hope so. I've just never done it before. Just imagine that you're talking to the podcast audience, and you'll be fine. I can try. Like, just don't make eye contact with anybody. Look down. You look down. Just look down. Look <laughs> ashamed at what you're doing. Um, I did talk to a friend who used to do ghost tours, and um, she basically said to walk faster when you want people to follow you because they'll lag behind if you don't. So That's walk faster time. than you want them to walk. That's true. I think that makes sense. I used to give um, tours in college of oh, my really? campus. Yeah, for admissions. I did it for admissions, and I did it for alumni relations. And I'm not sure which was more fun, 
Because admissions, you have a bunch of, like, bright-eyed, like, high schoolers and their oh, parents yeah. who ask fun questions, and you kind of, like, you do have to walk fast, be like, okay, now we're going this way, and you have to walk fast and kind of backwards at the same time. Yeah. The alumni tours were kind of out of, out of like, control, though, because there's always alumni weekend, which is, of course, a big party weekend. There's yeah. like a big football game, big tailgating weekend, and the alumni, though, were great because you'd, like, take them through the standard same like tour you do for emissions mm-hmm. but the alumni would be like oh when I went here and then tell you like some ridiculous like oh, salacious great. story about how they used to party on the roof of this building or how they went streaking through the quad yes yeah. <laughs> uh, I heard so many good tales it was great that sounds amazing so you hope we'll have some fun tour stories too well I have I told you about the, the burned out monastery across the street from my college campus no do you want to hear about now? Sure. Wait, which college did you go to again? I went to Wagner College. Where's that? It's in Staten Island, New York. Oh, okay. So it's like, it's a borough of New York City, and it's like... I've been to Staten Island. Yeah, it's like right across the, the Hudson from downtown Manhattan. And the campus was situated on the highest point on the island, this hill called Grimes Hill. And it had been a couple other things before the college bought the land around it. It had been, you know, the estates of like a Cunard family member and also a Vanderbilt family member oh, cool. and they built mansions there and owned all the land around it. The campus was actually like on a hundred plus acres. The Vanderbilts own like an insane amount of property. They, they have did. New they did. York, they had in Philadelphia, mm-hmm. Rhode Island. There was actually an old Vanderbilt mansion that the college had preserved and we actually used it for, it was admin and also like some classrooms and they built it on top of the hill because both the Vanderbilts and the Cunards could look down into the bay and see like the Bay of Manhattan from the houses on the hill in Staten Island. Oh, that's cool. So the other part of the uh, campus was rented out by the Catholic Church. And Staten Island has a very large Catholic population, and there yeah. was actually an Augustinian uh, monastery there. And at some point in the 1960s, when there was a boys' school also attached to it, there was a tremendous fire. Of course. There's always a fire. And it started in the bell Did tower. Did Kim light this one, too? No, it wasn't Kim. <laughs> <laughs> But there was a, the fire started in the bell tower, and you could actually see, because the monastery was still there, the boys' school was sold to the college, and they actually like knocked it down and ended up building a dormitory over it. Okay. Um, but where the monastery was, there was still the bell tower that was all burnt out and stuff like that. But it was huge. And like, you could, it was abandoned, and you could still like sneak on to the property, because it was literally like campus, and then like there'd be like a dormitory, you go up a little path, there's like an admin building, and then a road, and then the monastery. Yeah. And there's a long driveway, and you could actually walk behind it, and there were still like the gardens, and like you could see like yeah. a cross-shaped fountain. You could go into the monastery. Because like all the windows were gone, the doors were gone, and it was like one of those places where like you'd explore in the daylight, but there were also like homeless people living in it. Oh, that's great. So it's a little sketchy at night, but people would still have like keggers and stuff. And of course, being like... You know, the dumb stuff that people do on old church property. So, like, the chapel was mm-hmm. where people would have keggers. And there was all this graffiti and, like, you know, all the dumb, like, anarchy signs and, like, pseudo-Satanism things. But um, it what was you so... expect f- from a college campus. Yeah, and it's funny. Like, in retrospect, I'm like, what were we doing going into an abandoned building that was basically falling around, falling down around us to go drink beer. So it's dangerous. Beer. Yeah. We did the same thing. There's this place Crazy. that's supposed to be haunted called the Alamo. Not the one in Texas. <laughs> like the one that Ozzy Osbourne peed on? <laughs> no. Uh, this is one in Darktown. Mm. Um, which Darktown... I know where Darktown is. Yeah. It's like back in the woods, and it was like this factory that I guess had burnt down at one point or something like that. Do you know how it got the name The Alamo? I don't know, but people call it the Alamo, and it's supposed to be haunted. There's supposed to be, like, hellhounds and stuff like that. I didn't hear anything. It was pitch black when we were there. We just took, like, um, a giant case of beer when we were, like, underage, of course. Of course. And just drank there the whole night, and then we almost got caught coming back out, though. (laughs) That would have sucked. I think that always, like, is one of my, like, heartburn things about haunted, supposedly haunted locations or whatever. Yeah. Is that a lot of times, and I don't know if you found this in your research for the podcast, but I have where it's like, you find something that sounds like a really cool story, and then you read a little bit further and you realize, oh no, it's just yeah. this abandoned building where kids go to like fuck around. Well, that's what I just said for this yeah. one, yeah, for the and it's like for that sanitarium, right? Yeah. And it's like it's so crazy because it's like I did it as a kid, you did it as a kid, exactly. And it's like if I ever had kids, I would be like, listen, I get it. But seriously, don't go to abandoned buildings. You're going to get hurt. You'll fall You're going to get hurt. 
It's like, it's not going to be a ghost that gets you. It's going to be the poor infrastructure. Exactly. Where you collapse through. Yeah. Like, uh, but anyway. Anyway. Oh, by the way, if you want to learn more about the uh, weird monastery, you can actually go to like, I think Weird New Jersey did an article on it. Oh, cool. Um, which is funny because it's Staten Island, but it might as well be Jersey. But yeah. it's not. But it is. That's true. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, I remember uh, we came across that like a couple years after we had graduated. My college friends and I were like, oh my God, guys, look. Look. Unfortunately, that they tore it down and built more dorms there. Oh, really? That's sucks. I'm sure they're beautiful. I'm sure they're great, but not as cool as a monastery. Exactly. With graffiti. Anyway. On that note. I guess we should plug stuff. Plug our pluggables. So first of all, I've said it like three times this episode, but our website is roadsidehorrorshow.podbean.com. Uh, you can always email us. Please send us not only your favorite true crime stories that you'd love us love for us to cover, please send us your own paranormal haunting stories, any kind of weird experiences you want to share with us, any kind of cute pictures of your pets. Yes. Maybe a squirrel, maybe something that'll take our minds off of, you know, our minds Kim off and of her the squirrel that was terrible, here earlier. Yeah. <laughs> Kim and her terrible chattering. And again, that email address is roadsidehorrorshow at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Roadside Horror Show, as well as Twitter at Roadside Horror. Uh, we'd like to thank Yox Rocks Designs for our killer logo, no pun intended, and also E. Massey for our amazing theme songs. So, if you like what you heard, please like and subscribe to the podcast and tell anyone and everyone you know. Tell them about us. Yeah. yeah. It, it really does make a huge difference, guys, when you like and review and rate our podcast on your favorite podcatcher. It doesn't matter if it's Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It's just one of those things that helps other people who are looking for quality content find our content. It helps us be more visible, um, especially on Apple Podcasts. That's like If you give us a five-star review, we'll get like bumped up to people finding us easier. That being said, I will say adieu until next week. Yes, um, Arriba Dirty. I don't know, I just wanted to say it in a different language. Ciao! <laughs>